Hi, I'm Kate Knuth, and I'm running for Mayor Minneapolis. Welcome to Courage for Our City. On this podcast, we're going to be hearing from courageous leaders all around Minneapolis who are helping to make our city better. We're going to talk about how better mayoral leadership is part of what we need to move Minneapolis forward. And we're going to be talking with Minneapolis leaders every week from now until the election on November 2nd. I'm running for mayor Minneapolis because meeting this historic moment in our city requires a mayor who asks all of us to step forward with courage to build a city that works for everyone. Let's jump into the conversation. All right, welcome to this episode. I am excited to talk with Elliot Payne today, but first going to jump in with some updates about the campaign. Really just one big one. We are moving fast and have a lot happening. People are really tuning in to the elections, both on charter amendments and on candidates. And, you know, earlier this week, we had one night where we had a door knock, a text bank, and I was with over 40 people at a meet and greet. It was really exciting. And with less than four weeks to go in the election, we are moving and getting out and hearing from as many voters across the city as we can. So I want to jump right into the conversation. So we have plenty of time. We are talking to Elliot Payne. He is the DFL endorsed candidate for city council in Ward 1 and really excited to dig in particularly about public safety with him today. But fun fact, Elliot and I actually got to work together. We were both working at City Hall when I was Chief Resilience Officer and he worked in the Office of Innovation. So that's how we got to know each other and it's been fun crossing paths with him on the campaign trail this year. So Elliot, I'm going to turn it over to you. Can you tell us a little about who you are and what you're bringing to this campaign for city council. Yeah, thanks for having me on the podcast. This is great. Yeah, like you said, we first met in City Hall. I was in the Office of Performance and Innovation, and you're our Chief Resilience Officer. And it was we would just cross paths in the hallways all the time, and that'd be really fun. Yeah, our offices were like literally next door to each other. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and my path to City Hall was very nonlinear. And actually, I have a very similar story to a lot of folks who live in Northeast and Como. I moved to Minneapolis to go to the University of Minnesota. My undergrad was mechanical engineering, and I just wanted to live my life and start my career here in Minneapolis and found Northeast to be just a wonderful neighborhood to set roots in. And I didn't initially set out to do public service. I was working in industry, and then I ended up you know, going to grad school to advance my career more and got an MBA. And I was just kind of minding my own business, so to speak. Um, and it actually kind of started in 2014 with the uprising in Ferguson, where I started going, you know, I can't just sit here focused on my personal career and not be in the arena for the types of changes that we need to see in our country. And I didn't know what that meant to make that personal commitment. I didn't know what path that would take me on, but it led to doing a lot more volunteer work for nonprofits. It led to being in social circles and communities of other folks who are as committed to purpose-driven work as I was at the time. And that was actually my entry point into City Hall. I was literally at one of the annual fundraising parties for one of the nonprofits that I volunteered for. And I met the director of arts, culture, and the creative economy at City Hall. Her name's Gulgoon. And at that time, I was working in the creative industry as a kind of technical 
strategist, designer, hybrid person because I have this very strange set of skills around human-centered design and community facilitation and building consensus across disparate perspectives. That's kind of what my skill set is and why I ended up on the innovation team at City Hall. And playing that role during the uprising put me kind of at the center of the city's response because our team ended up being tasked with, uh, we had actually already started the process of developing some alternatives with police. It was called the 911 MPD work group. You may have heard that referenced in city council. And that work stream landed on our team. And I ended up being the facilitator for those community design processes. And, you know, when I woke up to the news of the murder of George Floyd, I mean, my heart broke, my stomach sank. Mm -hmm. And I first was in this kind of deep, dark place of what was the point of pivoting my career towards public service and purpose-driven work if this is just going to keep on happening. And then I kind of picked myself up and rebuilt myself. And we ultimately got the safety for all budget passed at the end of the year. And that's kind of what leapt me into wanting to announce my candidacy this year. Wow. I so appreciate the finding your, I think, a clarity of purpose and vision about I need to help or I need to show up in a different way to be more of service. I have this set of skills and like finding the path and the way to work with others and to collaborate, as you said, which is so important in government generally. And I think especially important in Minneapolis city government and right now. But I want to take us back to some of that work you referenced, the 911 working group and some of the responses to developing better alternatives to policing. You know, I get asked, is the goal more police or less police? And, you know, police is part of the conversation, but the goal is public safety. Our goal is public safety for everybody in the city. And that's what I want us to focus on. And that's something I try to talk about a lot in my campaign. And I'm curious, as you were doing like the research and engagement work around building a more effective public safety system, can you tell us a little bit about that work and some of the things that you learned? Yeah, so... We have developed a complete process around how we want to center the voice of the community in any of the policy work that we do. We like to tell stories from the perspective of the people that are impacted. We like to ask the right questions around those stories. And then we like to connect the dots. So you get to hear from a disparate set of experiences, and then you're looking for those themes, those overlaps, where are their similarities? And then From there, building on that shared understanding, that's when we start the policymaking process and imagining what's possible through a process of iterative prototyping. Mm -hmm. And then we like to tail that process off with a data-driven measurement process of, is this intervention working? Is it improving the outcomes that we were hoping to achieve? And one of the things that we have learned through this process is the current structure of the city creates a lot of roadblocks for doing things differently. And some of those roadblocks are by design. I think that people throw around bureaucracy as a pejorative, but I think that bureaucracy is not necessarily a good or bad thing. It can be a force for good or a force for bad. Mm -hmm. And what I experienced at the staff level trying to implement this work was the bureaucracy weaponized 
for mm. bad to slow things down to like let's pause for a minute and let's not really evaluate the, the power balance and the funding balance and it shows up in large and small ways mm-hmm. data sharing was big for us we didn't make any recommendations without data and so we really needed that 911 call data at a level of granularity so that we could understand you know for the mental health team when are the peak call times where mm-hmm. are the geographic locations in the city where these calls are happening most frequently so that we could stage where should the van be parked you know what time should the team be active oh we need it 24/7 okay so with the call volume how many teams do we need to have to have 24/7 coverage across this ge- geographic area those kind yeah. of questions are the questions that we ask and you can't answer those questions without data yeah. and so even just the simple act of sharing data within the enterprise can be something that can help advance a project and make it more successful or slow the project down and be more likely to fail. I one of the words I didn't use very often before working for a city was the enterprise. So like that you by that you mean like the city government operation itself yeah, just if, so yeah. folks are on board with that and understanding. So what I'm hearing you say is just that information sharing and information sharing in a way that facilitates good decision making. So right. there are patterns to when and where people call for mental health help into our 911 system and to make a good mental health response system, clearly we need to have that information to be responding quickly and effectively and have enough staff to do that. So it sounds like that was a piece of the work after having done this deep listening and synthesizing from folks in different parts of our community. Yeah, that's right. And we were only starting with mental health. Our intent was to go across all the different types of issues that show up in community and identify targeted approaches to responding to those. And for political reasons, for resource reasons, it got limited down to mental health and non-theft reporting calls. Those are kind of like the two main changes that our team brought forward that passed in the budget. But I think the thing that's really important for our collective audience, both yours and mine, is to recognize that this work should be able to continue despite the structure of the charter, but the Mm -hmm. the work is held back. And part of what holds it back is the ability to slow things down based on the structure of the departments right now. Mm -hmm. Those barriers won't magically be removed if this charter amendment passes, but those barriers are codified right now in the current structure of the charter. Mm -hmm. And I think that If we had this more unified public safety department, it would remove some of those barriers of data sharing, access to staff, just like really kind of boring ways that good government works. Just, you know, (laughs) whose whose calendars can you get on? How are those meetings prioritized? Who's in the every other week meeting with the whole department? Yep. (laughs) Yeah. It's not glamorous, but it's these really practical aspects of doing good government that I think that having a Department of Public Safety would clarify, because I think in some instances, it's hard to imbue motivation on people or project motivation on people. I don't know why people were hesitant to share data. I don't know why people were hesitant to include their staff members in our work process. But the data was not immediately shared. Staff members were not looped in. There was all these things that were slowing our work down and, you know, Really, it's still right now at this 
moment. The launch of the mental health team was supposed to have happened a month or two ago, and it got delayed for various reasons, some of which are completely neutral, but I think some of them had some mm-hmm. intentionality behind them for whatever reason. And I think that's the part that's really important for our community to understand is that there are people inside City Hall that don't want this to be su- successful, and they have the tools of the bureaucracy to ensure that. Yeah. And I will also say there are people who really, really are pushing to make our Absolutely. response system more effective. And I really, I appreciate you digging in on the uh, the structure and the bureaucracy, which is both a combination of the structure and the culture. And, mm-hmm. you know, when I t- think about my own career and where I really try to serve and help the community is I try to make big public bureaucracies work better for what we need them to do now. So, you know, when I served in the legislature on our state environmental quality board, I built a program at the University of Minnesota, which is not government, but a big public bureaucracy that is slow moving in all sorts of different ways. And then at City Hall. And, you know, I think having a sense of possibility and holding that possibility for change, particularly with something as important as public safety right now, and being able to kind of step back and think about and understand the whole bureaucracy of city government, both what's on paper and what's cultural, I think is so helpful to doing the work we need to do together as a city right now. And yeah, the Department of Public Safety Charter Amendment Regardless of whether it passes, we have work to do and we will do that work. But I support it. I know you support it because the framework or the kind of the the container, the work we need to do will be more effective at building this more holistic and effective systems. And I think you just raised something that, you know, I just went on a long thread of just the structural, practical aspects of what I'm hoping will be achieved through the Department of Public Safety Charter Amendment. One thing that I didn't touch on is how important a signal it's going to be to the institution that the residents of Minneapolis want to go in this direction. Hmm. Like as a signal, like setting aside the hierarchy and structural reorganization that that's going to afford us to be able to advance this work, setting aside all of those practical concerns, just the signal to the institution, to the culture, no, 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 no. This is the direction that the city of Minneapolis is going in, I think is one of the most profound reasons that I'm supporting the Charter Amendment. Yeah, I mean, I talk about this a lot is the status quo is not a path to a safer Minneapolis. And, you know, I appreciate voters are digging in on the details of this and every Charter Amendment. But fundamentally, I think there is this are we going to really dig in and change and do better and actually work from the value that every single person in the city deserves to feel and be safe? And how do we do that most effectively? And, you know, I have been clear in my communications, like police are part of that Department of Public Safety, an essential part of it. But there is more effective ways to achieve what our goal is, safety. I sometimes feel like we get stuck in the, is the goal more or less police or uh, policing? That is a tool that is part of it, totally essential and important to the Department of Public Safety. But the goal is safety. And that is what we're all working really hard to achieve. Um, 
looking back at the work that's been done and kind of what the structure is now and the possibility going forward, are there some things like giving some examples to people to really make sense of the work you've done in the Office of Performance and Innovation and thinking about the Charter Amendment? What are some examples, like one or two examples to help people really understand what this might look like going forward? Yeah, so a lot of the public discourse has been around the mental health team. But mm-hmm. one of the aspects of what passed last year that isn't talked about as much, because again, it's not that alluring, I guess, um, <laughs> <laughs> is using regulatory services. You know, the people who drive in the city vans to do garage inspections, utilizing that capacity to create a police report for you if your garage gets broken into. The police don't recover your stolen bicycle when your garage gets broken into. The police provide a police report for you to use with your insurance company if you so choose. They don't recover stolen items typically. That's not the general outcome of calling the police when your garage gets broken into. So utilizing a resource like regulatory services to come and do that administrative work of collecting evidence, taking pictures. It's important for pattern matching to have in our you know, historical record where those types of crimes are happening. That doesn't need to be a uniformed officer with a gun. They're not going mm-hmm. in gun raised, you know, opening up the garage door like there's yeah. a perp still in there. Um, that's not that exciting, but it's, again, one of these just like practical common sense things about this whole process of coming up with alternatives to policing. Yeah. And I, the way I talk about that is it it takes something off the plates of police officers and gives them more time to do the things we really need them to right. focus on. You know, right now it's very frustrating as a resident, the solve rates for violent crime, which is they're below national averages in my understanding. And that's something I think people in the city really want officers to have more time to focus on. And so if we can take off something that might take a fair amount of time, um, but doesn't require officers in the same way, I think it it helps us make a better system overall. It's not going to fix everything, that thing. No, but, no. But it's one piece of the work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, so, you know, obviously I'm running for mayor, you're running for council. One question I'm curious about, and I ask guests a lot, is... I call our po- this podcast Courage for Our City because I think to build the city of Minneapolis that we all dream we can have and that I think we deserve to have, it's going to require many of us to step forward into this work with courage. And I think you have clearly done that in your work at the city and now as a candidate. But what, as you think about that, what would help in terms of mayoral leadership? Are there things that you think mayoral leadership would help individuals in the city, staff, counsel anyone to do the work you're talking about as effectively as we can. Yeah, I think candor and transparency. Mm -hmm. And we're already seeing that right now. Uh, I think, you know, just this week, council ultimately ended up approving these dollars, but the Poll Ad Foundation, it sounds like they worked kind of behind the scenes in the mayor's office to develop this uh, or respond to this grant around early intervention for identifying problem officers. Yeah. On a policy perspective, it sounds great. Like, Mm -hmm. let's invest in early intervention. This sounds like a really good thing to invest dollars in. But the process by which we got there of not having public hearings, not looping in council. 
And actually, the process is that council has to approve grant applications of right. this amount. Like it's a small, it sounds kind of small, but right. given the lack of trust between council and mayor, it is another little thing that undermines that. And right. we've seen a lot of those things. And we experienced that in our work when mm-hmm. we were working on the mental health team. While we were in earnest, the de facto lead group to respond to this and you know, do the community engagement and do the policy work. There was this parallel path coming out of the mayor's office, you know, having these conversations with organizations like the Polad Foundation and others around coming up with a mental health response. Hmm. And why would we duplicate this work? We need to be working much more closely and in collaboration with each other. And to go off and kind of have these sidebar activities outside of the normal process that's public and we can debate it as a community and we can receive input from the community instead of going that route doing these things in the mayor's office i think it breaks down those those elements of trust Mm -hmm. and just like we saw with the mounted horse police Mm -hmm. uh, council decided to reallocate about a half million dollars from the mounted horse unit to invest in violence prevention Mm -hmm. and the way that it works is that council can set the dollar amount that goes into that ledger account in yeah, the budget. <laughs> that department, yeah. <laughs> uh, but the department gets to decide what they want to do with the absolute dollars. They have 100% discretion independent of what that number is within their account. And mm-hmm. so likewise with this Polad Foundation, it sounds great to do an early intervention system and my, you know, I have this background in like innovation and technology and I can imagine how you could, you know, create a predictive system and I can imagine some of the problems around predictive systems and bias, but they don't even have to use the money for that. Once it's in their account, they could just buy tear gas. Like there's nothing that there's no oversight about how those dollars are spent unless we have the trust Yeah. And that's where the (laughs) candor and the transparency really comes back. You know, I talk all the time about needing to rebuild trust with MPD and not through PR or community engagement. Both of those things matter. But what really matters right now is actually digging in on the change that needs to happen. And right. and I don't really see a path forward. I use the phrase radical transparency, which I say as a former elected official and someone seeking office now, transparency can be a little scary because it requires vulnerability. It requires trusting our community to not just push back hard, to use the information and process it in ways that help us move forward. But I'm not sure how else to rebuild trust except through real transparency. And I think Kander being very direct about what we're doing and why and, and that really strong communication. So it's no doubt challenging, but I think it is totally essential and important. And I think um, one of the things, I think I knew it before, but I understand it in a deep, deep way, having been in so many conversations with folks in the city is people in Minneapolis are ready to do this work together. You know, we have been in a lot of ways and I think are hungry to really dig in and make our public safety system better. And I think that's a really exciting possibility. So, yeah. Do you have any final reflections as we wrap up or anything else you want to share with listeners? Yeah, I think choosing this life path, you're crossing a Rubicon. (laughs) When it comes to this radical transparency and openness and vulnerability, like, I'm terrified of getting a firebomb thrown through my window because my home address is on every single piece of literature out there. 
yeah. as a black man who's advocating for black life, I'm afraid of a firebomb going through my front window. Mm-hmm. And I'm putting my trust and faith in our community that that's not going to happen, that yeah. we're all aligned on wanting to see this vision forward and that there's more excitement about this vision than there is uh, fear and anger. And mm-hmm. that's, it's, it's a trust fall. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm just trust falling into our community and I'm hoping to be held up. And I'm yeah. hoping that the vision that I'm, again, candor and transparency trying to share, there's more people that are like, yes, I want more of that than there are people that say, I want to kill him. Yeah. So that's the bet I'm making right now. <laughs> that's a powerful way to put it. I kind of am tearing up when you say that because... I do think especially in this moment where there is so much anger and fear and way too many of our leaders are are enabling that and fostering that, people are hungry for that candor and transparency and that trust. And I say I like I feel like my candidacy is also a leap of faith and trust. And it is really both humbling and totally energizing to feel so many people who are catching that and running with that just through the campaign. And I'm excited about the potential of pushing that even further in City Hall. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Elliot. I really appreciate the conversation. So fun after getting to work together a few years ago to have our paths crossing and intersecting again and really appreciate you joining us on the show. I am really glad that I could join you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to our conversation today on Courage for Our City. We're still building to election day and we need your support to build our campaign. We need donations, volunteers, and of course, your number one choice vote. Beyond the election, I ask Minneapolis residents to join me. Together, we can step forward with courage to imagine and build a city that works for everyone. Thank you to Maddie Zampanti from Conceptual Podcasting for producing our show. And also shout out to Jeremy Messersmith for providing us with the theme music for our podcast. That's it for this episode. Tune in again next week.